Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode two of the Voices from SA podcast. Thanks for joining me. My name is Nicholas Claude, and this week I interview Kahiso Ladija, a pioneer of the modern South African comedy scene. He's performed stand up around the world. He wrote and produced the legendary Piomanati show. He's also very involved with late night news with Loisa Gola, and he more recently has produced the Bantu Hour. His directorial debut, Catching Feelings, will be in cinemas around South Africa on March the 9th and released worldwide in April. Kikiso is part of a generation of South African comedians that have emerged over the last decade. Includes local comedy greats such as David Carl, Joey Rastin, Lisa Gola, of course, and the host of The Daily Show, Trevor Noah. He's a real storyteller, great raconteur, so we, we had a good time talking about his early comedy influences that hell of a process that he went to to get his Piomanati show dream on the screen, on the small screen. And uh, just the power of perseverance has been quite incredible. He's got a lot to say about the current state of South African comedy as well. Bear in mind, please, that the show was recorded in early December as I was starting the process of preparing a library of interviews. So I just wanted to let you know that, just to put it in some context. Sensitive viewers, please note there is some swearing. Please enjoy now my interview with Kahiso Ladija. So, uh, Kahiso Ladija, thanks so much for your time on a Sunday morning of all mornings. Um, let's go back uh, to the beginning, as it were. Um, you grew up in Pretoria, as I understand it. Yeah, I I had uh, I kind of had an extensive Pretoria upbringing. I had I my parents were I guess when they were because I realize now that I'm about the same age they were more or less when they separated. So mm-hmm. and it's it's like crazy because they're still there out there somewhere. Um, uh, I I grew up. They lived in a place called Sochanguve. But I grew up, before that, I went to preschool in Atridgeville, which is my favorite um, uh, township of all time. It's like, because mm. it's got like this quaint, it's full of old people. It's an old place and it's like deep kind of with history. And it's, I think it's also the most, the, the most successful people, South Africans, a lot of them come out of there. But it's also got the most amount of serial killers came out of, out of Atridgeville. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but very cool, like Jazdi Kam, Seneke, a lot of cool people come right. from, from Atridgeville. Um, um, so then, so that was when I was like very small. I'd lived with my grandmother there. Then my parents moved to a place called Sochanguve. My parent, my dad worked for a bus company, um, uh, the BTH, Botswana Transport Holdings. Huh. Um, he was a sort of, I don't know exactly what he did there. And my mom was always a nurse, a health worker and a sort of small time entrepreneur, you know, because at any given time, my house would be either like packed with leather jackets or shoe boxes <laughs> or whatever, you Stuff know, that she was selling. selling. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, and, then my, and then my dad went and worked as an insurance salesman. Okay. Um, which was from, it, it, and then I think in all of my work, most of the stuff that I write, like films, like I think all the films that I've made, apart from one, there's an insurance salesman of sorts in there. <laughs> Your dad's yeah. And presence. I mean, yeah, and my dad, I mean, we've been, we've been sort of estranged, so uh-huh. I guess he lives through, in my world, through this kind of, and the insurance salesman is always a loser, sorry. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> oh, it's always at the lowest of the character. It's always somehow the protagonist, and then at his lowest, they always encounter or they become an insurance salesman. So you don't have a relationship with your dad, or we, he calls. Like we speak at least every six months, and uh, we see each other at like sort of family things. I'm gonna try to meet him over the, the holidays now in December. Take my he's never met my kid who's ten years old. So, yeah, it's quite crazy. Huh? Yeah. Um, so it was quite a, what would you say, sort of petty bourgeois, sort of lower middle class, yeah. uh, aspiring middle class sort of Yeah, yeah. I mean, we you, had like, we, we lived you in... you got the, brothers and sisters? I got my sister, who I work with all, all, most of the time. She's part of the, my posse. She, oh, okay. She, when I went to, I mean, I went to study, we were pretty, because we were the only two kids, so we were pretty close. And uh, she's a writer as well, and she directs television and stuff like that. Was comedy part of your sort of household? Was there, was there I, comedy in the house? Do, do you have a sort of early memory of a of a of a comedic event or was there something on TV? I, How, what was your what was your first interaction with comedy as you I sort mean, of would define I did, it now I, I guess my parents my parents always made whenever i was overhearing them they were kind of satirists of their circle you know because every time I listened to their conversations about their people. They always had like names for these people because you never knew if these were the people's names or the things that they made up for them, you know? And then it was always these caricatures that they did, which I think now in retrospect, this probably was one of those because they, mm. they were constantly kind of like catching up and be like, you know what bread men did, you know what so-and-so did and da 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 and the crazy stuff that happened mm. in their life. And um, I guess my, my mom's side, there were very, my uncles and aunts, there was a lot of kind of ridiculing and taunting, you know, making fun of you and that kind of stuff, you know. Mm. So I guess that was that. But I was a, a very boring. Like all my, my like people that I know from high school, I always like, well, you are such a, like a nerd and a quiet kid, mm. which I wasn't really. I was cool. Um, but you weren't the sort of class show off in that sense. I mean, and the, the, loud teacher always said, always. the teacher always said, I was, I was always talking. I mean, but mm. it was like every kid in the class I was always being told to shut up and be like and then I remember my math teacher said to me um, me out of all the people in the class needed to listen the best because my math marks were horrible and I said well I don't really think I need math because I'm gonna make movies and do stand-up comedy hmm. and then I mean that was quite it took her quite a back and then she said yeah but you never know you might need something to fall back on so touch wood I haven't fallen back on a, on a math you know that for me would probably be selling insurance because I think there's a lot of numbers there it's interesting that you chose that path at quite an early age, particularly the stand-up. Acting, I can kind of, I can, I can understand, but there wasn't really a, a culture or a space for stand-up comedians, let alone young black South African yeah, yeah, yeah. stand-up comedians in this country. At a, what are we talking, sort of early nineties? Yeah, ninety-four, ninety-five. Like. Yeah. Um, so the space. I think I finished school in ninety-five and university ninety-six. Yeah. So it was quite a sort of far out concept in itself that you were thinking that you're going to make something of this space that doesn't really exist. So yeah. how did you, how did that, how did, I, you, how well, did you make, I, go forward? Weirdly. I think, look, uh, there's a, there's, there's Woody Allen, which is weird because everybody always goes, Woody Allen, where did you hmm. see Woody Allen in Sasha Ngube? And I, I, I remember take the money and run and watch so funny you say that. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of my earliest comedy memories. That yeah. was such a funny movie. Mm. I watched that when I was like 10 years old. Yeah, yeah, that I think was it was me. probably the first 
comedy that, I ever watched. Yeah, that was me. Take the money and run. Remember when he came out of the pri- when he came out of the prison and he carved the soap, uh, the, the gun, and then all of that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> the note, like correcting the note. Yeah, that exactly. So, so I, I, and I watched that. It was on TV, I guess, and I was always like into Woody. Um, uh, I even watched New Pussycat. I think it happened like one late night where you kind of come across that, and mm. it was always this guy, this kind of nebbish. And I was like, ah, oh, this guy's cool. And when you read up about him, he's like a comedian. But I didn't sort of necessarily know what a comedian does. But I knew that, you know, he it was he had like a solitary comedy voice where he was making these films that were his story of his mind. Yeah, and then he was banking. also telling that, you know. Yeah. So that was like, cool, that's what I want to do. And so he's taking the piss out of himself as well, all yeah, the people exactly. around him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so then I went to when I went to university, I it was I, I was essentially going also falling into that whole thing of I also wanted to be an architect. I mean, it wasn't hmm. I, I totally wanted to study architecture, but my math was so bad, hmm. um, and I wanted to. I mean, at the time, I didn't know. I mean, like later in the years, I would find that they were quite compl- complementary filmmaking and architecture and those kind of things. But uh, at the time, I just kind of did like structure. And I also had a problem with the way uh, like apartheid architecture was and the way I was, gr- like in township, growing up in those places, how it wasn't designed to be beautiful. You know, it yeah. wasn't designed to make like a good time you know designed to separate and humiliate yeah exactly you know so so that was always a thing that one would be you know and i had a friend of mine so so when i went to university i didn't get into the arts uh, into the architecture school because of my math but Mm. then i ended up you know but then i also wanted to do drama it was a whole thing and then when i i I remember coming to Joburg for the first time on my own with a guy david cow who mm. is is like a big South African comedian? So you um, met David Carr all those years ago. Yeah, I met David Carr. We lived in the same building, and huh. we were. I was in standard eight. He was in standard nine. At some point, we wrote letters to like American studios, telling them that we wanted to make movies. And then they, I remember Warner Brothers or Fox sent us like this big package saying they don't accept solic- unsolicited materials, but if we can get in touch with our lawyers and here they like big forms and get big documents. Off. And we just walked around the streets with like, wow, you know, it also kind of makes you think that anything is possible. Yeah. So, so we went. Yeah, so then we went to to Johannesburg. The UCT drama school had their their Joburg auditions were at Wits, and I remember kind of coming up to Johannesburg for the first time, you know, independently with David Cow and uh, going, you know, through Nord Taxi Rank. It was quite intimidating, that and then is, going to yeah, yeah going to Wits and then doing this interview. I mean, these auditions, and it was cool and fun. And then, uh, what did that involve? Did you have to make up stuff, or did you have yeah, to read there was, stuff? Or? There was pieces that you came up with, and there were sort of improv pieces, and it was quite structured. But then, me coming from a certain school kind of background versus kids coming from Crawford and Joburg private schools who had like actual drama school. You know, they had like They'd drama preparation. Drama at school. Yeah, you I, hadn't done any of that. I didn't do that. Well, I did like plays and stuff. I mean, I had, I was better off that, than a guy coming from like the hood hood, you know, because mm. I was kind of going to this private school in town and we did, we did uh, uh, the big play of like when I was in Standard 8 or Standard 9, it was quite big. I was playing Jacob Mali in uh, D- Dickens' Christmas Carol. So, okay. and it was big, uh, but it was, you know, these kids, it wasn't as a formal, you know, the, the, it was the big play of the year whereas these kids probably went they through did it all the time yeah they yeah. investigated a lot of things states of being and crap yeah. so 
So then we got there. It was interesting. I did. I ended up not getting in because I hadn't properly applied to the drama school. I found out. You know, I I got into UCT to do a BA, but then I didn't get into drama school, which was this thing, this extreme, like sort of, you know, Lee Strasberg type of Stanislavski institution. Oh, it was very theater. serious. Yeah, it's quite. I mean, like it's one of the best drama schools in the world, apparently. Huh. You know, if you are counting all the hundred top ones, or maybe, okay. I don't know, but it's up there. You know, Richard E. Grant, M. Beth Davis, those types of people. So so I was like, cool. So my first year at university was, oh, and then I remember UCT saying, you've been accepted, but if you don't, we can't really sign off on you because res is full and you don't have res. So I dropped the phone, paced up and down, picked up the phone again, and I said, yeah, I've got res. I had no idea. I'd never been in Cape Town. And then, <laughs> and then I... I and then it was cool. I went to I went to UCT, Cape Town, great on one of those buses, Intercape. It was crazy. So I got there and I never I stayed at the backpackers. And the backpack. I was. It's funny because I was telling the story recently. And the backpackers. I was some kid from Pretoria, you know. And as like this sort of Cape Town, you know, Cape Town is a certain kind of culture. And the backpackers Fine. was like a yeah, it was a bunch of Germans and mm. Swedes and what what is like a you know students, young people. But then. The, I remember, you know, it was cool to kind of, I was like, wow, this is interesting. This is a cool kind of time and place, you know, and all these girls. It, I remember the dorm room was also kind of unisex. So it's right. like you, you're sleeping and all these girls are getting undressed and getting, you know, and yeah. I was like, okay, this is interesting, cool. I'm, I'm fresh from Pretoria. And then this guy took me to the side on like one of these days. And then he said, you know what? Being helpful, um, I thought. But he was like, this is far from where you, your university is. So I don't think you should be here. You should go maybe move closer to the university. And then I was like, oh, I guess he's got a point. But then years later, I'm like, wait a minute. That guy was an asshole. You know, <laughs> he was being like this black guy's he making everybody uncomfortable. You yeah. <laughs> you know, what a dick. Anyway, if you, it was called Zebra Crossing. I hope it went out of business and died a horrible death. Um, um, but it, it was cool. So I moved. So it was that year yeah. of being at university. And then when you realize this independence of no, all the time was your time. So it was, and my my classes were finished at 12, but then nobody was, if, if I didn't go to the classes, nobody no cared. Was it was just one of those. Yeah. And then I, so I, I think I spent, I think I spent that year kind of just finding myself smoking weed, mm. getting an ear pierced, dreadlocks, you know, just being like, wow, it's my first time on my own, you yeah. know? And then uh, I... Uh, the comedy was still in the background there? or Yeah, was it, it was. I, I remember I had this idea of making this movie about these kind of kids. Because I just discovered weed. And then it's like this kind of weedhead movie thing of these high school kids are coming of age. I always wanted to make this movie. And... Uh, as, but it was like, okay, back of my mind. So a year passed, and I kind of met the, all these cool characters, growing people who are, you know, because university is strange. And I, in, in your same class, there's a 40-year-old, and then there's other guys who have got law degrees, and then all of that kind of stuff, and you're kind of meeting and be. And I didn't stay in res, so I had a certain kind of independence. And then David Carr was in res, so I would be broke completely. I think my mom also had that attitude of, we'll figure it out. Just go, whatever, we'll figure mm. it out. So I would be totally wasted. I mean, broke, and I'd go to J David Carl's res to get his res food. So he'd always like sneak me like these sandwiches uh -huh, right. and like Kool Aid or whatever weird juice they were eating. It wasn't healthy. I don't know what the government is doing, but your higher education is not being fed well. Um, um, 
Anyway, so the following year, uh, or maybe the end of that year, what was it? So wait, so I go, I finally get into the performance diploma. So I was a year, you know, I went. You were a year I, later. I, yeah, so I had like my class of people that were in my class that we were doing drama together with that I had met at the audition in Joburg, um, uh, cool people. But then, at, you know, at 12.30, at 1 o'clock, they would get on a bus and drive to Michaelis. And then right. I would kind of have all the date myself. And then the following year, I was sort of with you a new batch of people you know so it was like this kind of staggered thing um, and then it was hectic I mean you start and they tell you that this is the most difficult thing and least rewarding thing you'll ever do in your life you know Mark Fleischman he's like the genius drama man I think he became the head of department eventually and he was like this is going to be you know if you're not ready now if you do not feel because he said it's going to be more difficult than what medical students are doing but then at the end of it you're going to be broke you're not going to have a, a thing like medical students are going to be able to back on. yeah and, and it, it's also uh, yeah it's so demanding etc cetera, etc cetera. you're going to be a waitress and a waiter and all of that kind of stuff and if anybody is not sure about it you must leave now and then there was a guy like who stood up and left you know and then I was on yeah I was like I always wondered is, is there like a guy is he there? maybe he goes to every class every year and he does that just to as a dramatic thing but anyway that guy left but you could see he was like nah not for me and yep. then he was out um and then we 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 so yeah that was cool it was an interesting time because you kind of have it's like a micro kind of existence of this artist community of like mostly white kids from privileged uh. backgrounds and black kids from really underprivileged backgrounds mm. and but because you know it's not like you're studying something to do with management or running a bank one day or being an engineer you know it's all kind of frivolous you know? What were the dynamics of that class? Because, I mean, we're talking about very much the new South Africa then mm. and sort of groups of people, as you say, from completely different backgrounds that are really having to kind of meet each other for the first time in, in that sort of free environment. What was the sort of dynamic of that? Were there, it, were there race, it, racial there was, undertones? Or? There was, I mean, there, there was, I imagine at like, like math school or science school, it was a lot more hardcore because it's like a lot more kind of squares, if you had to put it that way. Whereas at Michaelis, it's like art school, you know? Yeah. So it's people who are kind of on the fringes Creative, of society. Creative, uh, yeah. so, outliers anyway. Exactly. So so all of the only thing that was, you know, the white kids didn't understand their privilege as usual because they were like, they came from private schools where, you know, Tsikhofatso and Katlejo was a cool guy at school, but he was like the daughter of like Keza Chief owner or whatever you know so it was very much the yeah rich kids coming in and Similar being like class, yeah, life of. continues whereas at university is where you go it's like like somebody always says when you go to the supermarket the billionaire and like the freaking the guy who does his garden all are there you know yeah, having to, to shop yeah. to buy whatever it is that they need so it was the same thing and that everybody, like, the black kids were always aware of what they didn't have, and then the, the white kids didn't know what they had, you know, that kind of thing. And it was always um, uh, the meetings after, you know, what is the problem, you know, one those kind of meetings that happen every two weeks or every month about what what is the problem, what is, and then the white kids would complain about the times of rehearsals, the this and that, you know, like practical things, if I'm going to be managing this and that, my dog has to be picked up at this place, and then the black kids were always like, yeah, but these things go on to, we're missing Too lunch, we're bigger. missing dinner, we're missing, you transport know, just, home it, transport home, it was always that kind of stuff, and then you, and I remember the end of, it, like rehearsals would happen, and then the kids would say, yo, 
do you want to come for drinks? It was always, you know, you come for drinks and then other kids, black kids would go, I got to go to rest, man. What are you talking about? If I come with you, I'm not going to eat. I didn't live in rest, so I didn't have rest to go to. You just so didn't I didn't have, have money. Go. Yeah, well, you know, but then I, it, it was, bottle of Dassenberg was 10 bucks at the time. Mm-hmm. So you, but then it was also good, it's a place where cultural exchanges are happening mm. as well. So you kind of go, let's go, you know, and then you you end up kind of, it's like a whole other place, you know, you're kind of drinking lots of wine into the night and it's like interesting cultural exchanges, ideas are shared and all of those kind of things. But it's also this access to another world, right? Because yeah, yeah. then I, I remember, and then I, you'd hustle and then end up, I remember the first time I saw Hot Bay. I went to go shoot something in Hot Bay, and then I, it made me want to cry because there, there were kids with ponies and this and that, and I just couldn't understand the level of, like, just access. And I was just like, what the fuck? I wasn't very political to a point, but then when I saw Hot Bay the first time, I got really upset, you know, because I was just like, what the fuck? You realized what the gap yeah. was. The cons- you know, when you're driving through Constantia and all of that kind of stuff, and you, you're like, no, man, this is bullshit, you know? Yeah. So what happened one year? So at drama school every month, every Friday, there was a thing called open class. So you'd come up there and then you'd do a performance independent of your whatever you get. Well, the taught. curriculum yeah. was. Or so you, and then the, the whole school would critique. And then every, and for me it was so intimidating because this is crazy. You get up there, you do your thing, and then people, people tell are, you how shit. And, and then I, I remember every time when I saw that, I'd just go, what? That was harsh, you know? And the teachers, especially Mark Fleischman, would go, yeah, I was really under, undercooked, under this, under that, you know? And then it was like that kind of level of, and I just was always scared to do that kind of thing. And then one day I plucked up the courage, I got like a set, like a stand up routine on, online. Because it was always text that you got, like whether it's Moliere or Shakespeare or like Quentin Tarantino, you know, people did whatever. And then I, I took this bit of, it was called Bible 2 Judgment Day. And then it was, it was a set. So I did it, it's natural, but you kind of hit the punchlines and I was kind of, I Just guess. Just get I your timing it. right. Yeah. So I did that. People, it was destroyed, you know. And then it was essentially, the following year, I was, the orientation week, whoever was organizing the orientation week, they called me to say, um, uh, can you please come and do your stand-up for the Orient for the freshers? And I was like, ah, okay, cool. But I didn't have you a didn't stand. You didn't know what to, you know. Yeah. So I, I, on the way there, I was with my friend from high school who was now studying architecture in at Cape at Cape Tech. And I was like, cool. I don't know what I'm gonna talk. Da, da, da. Then I got on stage. I got on a table. It was in this kind of big room. And there's and what was, hundreds of people there. Yeah, but maybe about fifty people. Is that the first time you've ever like performed in a front of a? an audience like that that was the first like doing stand up yeah, yeah kind of yeah. being like me telling you yeah. my idea so then i talked about my childhood and growing up in in the kasi and the kind of thing because my idea also was these white people that i'm talking to their whole idea of this of this black world was like this kind of on the news black people running from like t- tear gas and that kind of i always imagine that like any kind of narrative when you're telling people there's always this kind of you know, and, and I had to humanize it, you know? It was mm. kind of like I was a kid who was scared of the dark. The apartheid architects put the fucking toilets outside. I'm fucking, you know, that's how you ended up with, like, kids peeing on their beds all the time. And this and that, you know, so it was all this kind of crazy school stories. And then they, they, so once I did that, and then I started getting called for 
me and David Cow started getting called for sets on set, you know, like, I mean, on, on campus, kind of doing all sorts of, you know, come and perform at this and this venue because of this, whatever, there's a SRC um, uh, meeting or voting or something, but we not, it's something to make it light. And then David Cow graduated, and then he found a publicist and, and a, a manager, this big-time manager who managed Mark Banks and um, Mel Miller, who are ah, names Mel I'd Miller. never heard of yeah, before, yeah, yeah. But they, and John Blissmus. So they were like, you know, there was this kind of white comedy scene that was happening, yeah. and Dave Carr was now the black comedian. You know, they've never heard of anything like this before. He was on top billing. He was funny. He was making fun of apartheid South Africa. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. He was huge. He was gone. Um, and then we were kind of, I was finishing matric. I mean, I was finishing university um, and doing these shows. And then there was this big... And then I had a big idea of making a TV show, the Pure Minati show, yeah. which I thought would be cool to... Because all of the stand-up... But at the time, it's still a far idea, you know? It's like, whatever, you know? But if you can tell these ideas, these kind of mumblings that we little have... Little stories, little yeah, sketches. Yeah, and make them into onto a show it's still kind of bubbling and you never really know it's at this time it's still a sort of a variety show but it's definitely inspired by in living color and i'm just discovering um, monty python at the same time yeah. so it's like okay this is the vibe i was going to ask you about that about in living color because it's definitely i get that feel from that pure monati in particular yeah. but you're also sort of confronting some of the social and racial dynamics of this new sort of democracy that we're living in and those sort of using stereotypes in a way to make that commentary. Was that, uh, I mean, you obviously well, had was, set out to... There was, I mean, there was, a, there was also, I don't know how what we were conscientized. Maybe I was personally. And then I bumped into Mark Lottering and he was like, you, I've been looking for you. You did that show uh, with that thing. You know, the Fresh Faces. Yeah. We've got this thing called the Cape Comedy Collective. You must come. Huh. And then I was like, ah, okay, cool. He gave me the address, and then I got there, and there were all these young comedians there. Riyad Musa, Conrad Koch, Jason Cope, Stuart Taylor, Kitz Kunrat, you know, Mark Sampson, Nick Rabinovich, those types. So, so there, was a definite, there was a definite scene there in it, Cape Town. It, so, no, was there was, the sort it, of... it was starting. It was a thing yeah. called the Cape Comedy Collective, which was started by this British couple, which was a sort of like a, their way of also... Um, uh, Get, having a permit, uh, it was like the thing that they're doing for the grassroots and it was helping them get their work permit or living permit or whatever. But it was great. They really loved stand-up and they kind of came from the British culture of stand-up right, and they yeah. were trying to make it here. Yeah, you know? yeah. Very passionate. And uh, so, But I mean, this is the indication of how young this scene really is in yeah. this country and that mm -hmm. you were kind of there right at the beginning yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, you and the likes of David Carr and these other guys you've mentioned. Yeah. And then I suppose... Um, Loisa and Loisa was a sixteen-year-old child at the time. So I remember Lisa coming through as well. So yeah. you were you were part of that whole first wave, yeah. new wave. Yeah. Now I wanted to uh, move us into Pure Manati and how that actually came about because that obviously has been quite significant in your life mm -hmm. uh, from a professional point of view, but also for that whole sort of crew that 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 became the, the core of that and then into the late night as well with, with Loisa. Yeah. Um, so how did that now actually happen? And what were you, you mentioned in Living Color, but it's a bit more, to me, it seemed to, to have been, we were talking about conscientization earlier, it seemed to be, you know, you're trying to find a role for your comedy as a sort of comment or as, as a space in which to comment on the, the social and racial dynamics that, that, was, that was sort of, emerging now in this new uh, South Africa. 
what were you wanting to to say with Pure Manati? Because it, it well, was it, pretty far out. Some of those sketches are quite <laughs> almost like you feel uncomfortable watching yeah, some yeah. of that stuff. Yeah, it was crazy. The Leon Puster, yeah. for example. <laughs> Yeah, so what happened there? And the fact that you were given that space to actually, because that, that was pretty... That, yeah, that was for me the most amazing thing that we were given the space. You know, I, just, I commend those guys. Seven Maslamoni and people like Komuto Matsunyani and Spoon Tumalo who were kind of running the SABC at the time. And the content at the time was cool. I mean, things like Yizo Yizo came out of it, all of that. You know, it was another, it was a time where culture was kind of... You know, TKZ, Y Magazine, yeah. YFM, it was, there were like really cool things that were happening. But we, so we did stand up and then I was fascinated by all of these people. Because in, in your head you go, I'm so great, I'm going to make my voice heard, I'm this comedian, blah, 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 blah. And then you come across somebody like Riyad Musa, yeah, you know, who's just, you're like, wow, what's this guy doing here? Get on a plane, go to America and be a superstar. You know those, and then there's all sorts of voices and, you know, and a lot of great political commentary, but also because we are, it's never been done. You know, I'd go, like you were mentioning Hout Bay, I'd, they'd never seen a black guy kind of saying things in those ways, you know, so they didn't know what to think. Like, am I, is this, are we at a political rally? What's what's happening, you know? And then we, if the ones they understand, then it's, it's funny. But then you're telling them about, okay, growing up in the hood, this and that, I, you know, the idea that you have a grandmother and you're a black child who's scared of the dark, it's like, what? Yeah. You know, they don't have... That it was, and it's, it's still not part of their racist. reality at all. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and so that was the whole thing of speaking truth to these people and kind of standing up to them and being like, we're human. And then there were other comics out there who are kind of, they progressed as well. But you know, when the black guy goes on stage and says, I stole this radio, or I can't swim, or I did, da, 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 you know? And then, you know, there was, it was all, you, you kind of so you start, have to start somewhere, but playing it was always, on those stereotypes yeah, in a way, but without even kind of subverting them in any way, no, you know. Exactly. And then sometimes you 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 would also do the bit where you go, you would think that the people are gonna get the irony, but then they wouldn't. They would just be laughing at what you said, the straightness of it, you know. Mm. So it was an interesting time. But then I thought on a TV show that's kind of like speaks to the general public because it's like it first. We don't have, a, there's no voice, there's, it, everything was a rainbow nation, you know? And I was like, how can that be, though? Like, you can't, every time you watch TV, it's got this kind of rainbow nation flair and all of this kind of cuck. All those adverts horrible. as well, like every beer advert and every burger advert. Yeah, exactly. Like kind of exactly. painting you know? this. And, and we, wanted, we, we kind of wanted to comment on that. So it to was, burst the bubble a little bit. Yeah, and I was like, if these people here, we, we don't necessarily want to show stand-up because I wanted to make a visually spectacular type of thing, you know? And I thought, if we can all kind of get all these people to write, they've never written any minutes of television or anything. If I can get them into a room and write the TV show, this will be great. So let's shoot a pilot. To show the people what this thing is. So, Shalto Copley and Simon Hansen, Shalto Copley of District 9, yeah. and his partner Simon Hansen, they had a company called Atomic. Um, uh, I think it was Dead Time, Atomic Visual Effects was their company. So, I was like, they, they, had, they knew how to shoot things. And I was friends with Shalto's little brother at university, and he was always saying, My boot, my boot, this, my boot, that. So, when Sam Hendricks, uh, who was David Carr's manager at the time, we kind of nagged him for months you know because David was now living in Joburg and he called me one day and he said I just saw on television there's a guy 
Um, uh, I don't know who the fuck this guy is, but he's doing our thing, you know? And I was like, what are huh. you talking about? So I switched on, and there was a guy called Fed Joe, and he was doing this show, Fed Joe Live on ETV. It was quite brazen and cool, and he was kind of speaking truth to power. He was just a hip guy on TV, you know? And I was just like, who is this guy? You know, it turns out he had also been to UCT. He had lived in, the, you know, his parents were in exile or whatever, and then he had come back here to conquer the, the nation. And it was quite fascinating, and he was doing well. And then David moved to Joburg, and then he got a job on his radio show and ultimately his TV show and then that was what was happening and I was like you know what fuck it I'm going to make the Pium Nut show I'll show them so made this pilot um, we actually shot one sketch the one guy gave us 25,000 <laughs> made one sketch and then Shalto and Simon got busy with their things you know they were suing ETV and all of that kind of stuff so they were too busy for our little fucking sketch show um, then I met some other guys who had shot little sketches, some white dudes, but their sketches were shit. They didn't have, they weren't woke or cool or anything. Mm. But I was like, at least it makes a, con you know, it kind of puts some content, thing, you know? Yeah. And Shalto and them's company had done this really cool visual kind of this animation of the Pyominat. So when you saw it, it was quite slick and wow, these kids made this thing. And we we're like super dirty at this time. We we're like, I'm smoking lots of weed, living in a warehouse with a whole bunch of, one dude is trying to make an IT company. We've got like a Internet line coming into the house at 22,000 rand a month, right? So we, there's no real business. We're supposed to be making, making websites and hosting things, but all it's being used for is Napster. We're just downloading thousands Napster. of songs. Yeah. <laughs> I found an old file on my computer the other day, my Napster music. Yeah, from like, I can't even remember when that would be from 96, 97. Yeah, yeah, 97, 96, 97, 98, yeah. something. 98, yeah. So anyway, that's, yeah. so this is shit is fucking out. So eventually, I get to now. I'm doing comedy shows. It's like I'm getting around. You're building a reputation. Yeah, I'm doing, now. as in Cape Town. Comedian. I still meet people and they were like, wow, that was your kind of coming out party. Huh. So I performed this beautifully kind of built courtyard where they had like these kind of windows and overlooking, you know, and then I was performing on one of those kind of looking down and I destroyed, I killed it. You know, those mm. ones where you killed, then I was like a guy, I was a guy in town, Cape Town. And then eventually... People had your number then. And type of thing, yeah, yeah. you know. I took the money, I bought a VCR and a TV uh, because you can't, you know, I needed to be watching. There was this video store in um, Rondebosch where they rented videos for four bucks, like the most beautiful. I mean, everything from Hitchcock to now, through, through Spielberg, through, you know, Tarantino at the time. It was just, who would, so it was unbelievable. Huh. Um, uh, so, so, so that was for me like a great thing to have, you know. Um, and I've, I've moved into another house, which is really cool with some guy who has a diamond diver and he was traveling. He was in Angola most of the time. So, so you had the place to yourself. In. Yeah. Another guy, Ian van der Waal. Actually, this is the part. Yeah. That's another book. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> anyway. So now, now, now we, 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 yeah. So I'm working in, and then I get a call. I've now made this presentation document. Jason Cope has given up. He's moved to England now. He's painting fucking houses in England. I'm like walking the streets with this thing. Still I, with Pure Manati. With Pure Manati. Yeah. It's going to be a thing. It's going to be a thing. I get called. Uh, so I get called by the Sam Hendrick, no, Roddy Quinn, real concerts. They mm. have this thing, the 5 the FM comedy jam. So it happens at the convention center. It's like 3,000 people in this freaking room, and it's like stand-up. So I get called up, and I've heard of it. It's like a thing that's happening. Comedy's on there. It's bubbling. And obviously, David Carr is like the black guy of the thing, but I guess he's not available now. Can you come <laughs> be a black guy, you know? <laughs> 
I get you were the second uh, second in line. Yeah, I get I get pensamate. You know when I've got like these kind of I got a guy. My sister had a guy who was a kind of guy who sews things and makes things. And I said, yeah, make me pants is my coming out party. He made me. They were like literally like pajama pants. Like mm. like I thought they were cool at the time. They were like sort of drawstring. You know, like the dude, the big Lebowski kind of pajama pants type of thing. <laughs> so I was like, but I, but everybody looked at me like those are pajama pants, dude. <laughs> I was like, nah, man. And I had this cool hat that I'd gotten from a wardrobe storage or something. This green hat. It was like, yeah, slick. Rocking and, and an old secondhand army shirt, you know. So right. it was like this kind of crazy character. So I, I came to Joburg. I remember that. Oh, and then I had I had my friend Tsepo, who was Tsepo Mokhali. He also became like a comedian and a, a character in, in the Piominati show. We, we, and we were in the Cape Comedy Collective together. So he 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 got a job for Investec and he moved up to Joburg. And I remember say, him saying to us, yeah, I'm about to be a six-figure nigga, huh? And then <laughs> I, I was just like, wow, that sounds like a lot of money. That sounds like a lot of a lot of figures, nigga. Um, and and he so he so when he came, I sort of had this crazy ambition that I would live in Joburg in Cape Town, you know, and my spend my your whole, time yeah, on the I road, push my whole career, and da, da 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 da. So he came, he got a house in sort of in Koenig Avenue, it became an old age home, it's like a little flat in uh, like a bill. It was a Don Suites hotel. I don't know if you remember those types Don of things. Don Suites, yeah. Yeah, so he got one and it had like a half a room, which was my room that I was supposed to pay monthly rent uh, on. And then the only thing I paid at the time on that thing was the deposit and the money towards the fridge. And then obviously I was broke. <laughs> I couldn't maintain, like even my living, my <laughs> livelihood in Cape Town, let alone having a house in, in Joburg. <laughs> so, so when I came up here to, to do the the 5FM Comedy Jam, I had a house in Joburg. Great. Um, J David Carr gets me called up on the Fed Joe show. I, I, I tell them what to ask me. I, I say, okay, cool. Um, uh, great. I mean, I kind of went, I made fun of his show. I had my own jokes. So you know when you kind of let it, which is what they don't do in South African talk shows. So I essentially, ask me this, I'll give you this answer. Ask uh. Then the show was funny, you know. Then I was great. You got it like a scripted. Yeah, I just asked that. Then I knew what I was going to say yeah, and I knew yeah. how to respond. So for him, it was just never been seen. Wow, that kid is arguing you know so I finished that I go to do this 3,000 people uh, show my mom is in the crowd Martin Jonas's mom and my mom were sitting next to each other remember it was a highlight of my oh, mom man. unbelievable I go back to Trescalini the next day I remember and they were like come no I had done the show and Trescalini wouldn't let me in because they didn't know what the fuck who uh. and then I just came off TV and then went to the same place and I was like VIP yeah and all these TV characters like Simunye presenters and all of that where they would talk to you like you were friends and stuff I was like I don't know so it's for me it was like oh so you just I just you just because we're on TV together it's like we work at the same office oh wow that's interesting so anyway that was cool but then I had to go back to Joburg that was your first uh, brush with celebrity yeah so that was like a crazy one then I go back to Cape Town and I'm like okay I gotta go focus on my PMS thing and whatever and then I get a call from uh the producer of the Fed Joe Live, and they say they're like creative directors leaving. Can I come and work there? Or do I know anybody who could help? I was like, I don't know anybody. I mean, unfortunately, I'm working on my show, The Pure Minati Show. I, ca I can't help you, but I'll find somebody. I'll find somebody out there, man. But good luck with everything, you know? So I dropped the phone and then I continue with my life. And then they called again and they said, The sports on Fed Joe. 
the sports guy has just quit. You know, he's going to go work somewhere else. Do, would you like to be a sports guy? Then I was like, fuck yeah. Of course, I'm going to come there. Jump in. What happened to your, your PMS show? Yeah, yeah, let's not talk about that. I'm coming, I'm coming. So I, I came up to be an, a, like a weekly feature on Fed uh, Joe as like the sports guy. Right. Like Leo yeah. Manne, who was then, he had gone to run the Metro FM and eventually SABC One and stuff. He... He had left to do that, so I came in. I know, and he was like a Orlando Pirates fan, so he had like he was an avid sports guy, you know, a soccer guy and all of that. I didn't you give didn't a shit that. about sports, fuck all, you know. Mm. Um, uh, so when I sat down, so I was like, how am I going to tackle this, you know? Um, uh, they were like, no, you research it. I was like, yeah, but he's kind of passionate yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, so, yeah. so what I did was, I was like, enough. I'm not going to talk about like what's happening with Diego Maradona in that sense. I'm going to talk about the history of sports. So I'd get in and then I'd have this narrative of like how soccer began, you know, and how sayings like it's all fun and games until someone loses an eye was actually from whatever, whatever sport, you know. So huh. there's all this kind of crazy history and then I would pack it with gags in there and it would be very interesting and entertaining. And then at the end of that, with a little minute or two left, I'd say, Keza Chips is playing one two three and then that was that and then that was like a cool thing and then before all the shows um uh, so yeah then the show got scrapped and then i the cape comedy collective said yo we're going to the edinburgh comedy festivals 2003 you you're not you're up let's go it's like myself riyad musa a guy called sky 189 and then there's uh, like the the guy, the husband of the Mark Sampson, he'll be the host, you know. So it's Edinburgh. I don't know, fuck all. Get there. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's sure. the biggest fringe festival on the planet. Those kind of things. Um, uh, just overwhelming. Very cool. I mean, it's, it was also weird when you bumped into South African guys in those Sassel uh, rugby tops, ah, you know. Yeah. And then you're like, yeah, South African. We've got a South African show. And then they're like, fuck off. Fuck <laughs> off. I don't want anything to do with that fucking place, you know. I was like, whoa, that's interesting. <laughs> Like, you know, so I was just like, okay. And then the shows would happen, and I was, Riyadh was great because 9 11 just happened, and he was so relevant. He was like mm. the Muslim guy making fun of the world, you know, and America and what Muslims are going through at the time. So he was super relevant, and I was just struggling, you know. I'd come up, and I didn't have any way of contextualizing myself on, to these people. And then three days happened of me just dying on fucking stage, you know, every day. And there was three weeks to go, you know. So then I decided, fuck it, I walked. I remember the one day, I, when I showed them on the map, it was like 12 kilometers that I had walked around this fucking place. And they were also kind of saying to me, don't say that, that's very unpc. Don't say this. It's not, you can't make fun of gay people in England. Oh, no, man, you know, you, what you want, what you want. So I was like, okay, you know, so I was a bit held. Then after walking the streets, I came out that one night that, and and I just was on fire because I was now I was I had context. I, I was talking about their world. I was talking about my world. Then I was like, it was gelling. So it was great times. Every night was cool now, and it was genuine because I was then I had figured out the place. You know, I wasn't coming with my own thing that I think works and trying to transplant it there, which was a great lesson for me. That's the thing, I suppose, about audience and knowing your audience. Yeah. I mean, is that something you have to be very conscious of? And how do you yeah. how do you adjust then? your whole mindset to the I mean it's 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 the truth is that there's universal experiences right there's you know you know there's things we all have mothers we all fall in love we all have sex and stuff um but then what is the understanding of people you know like 
I have the Santa Claus gag that I used to do. And then when I went to Finland, I did that gag and it fell on its face. And I was like, what the hell is going on? That gag is like supposed to it's make life easy. It's yeah. like, you know, it's like Santa Claus. Everybody loves Santa. Then I worked, worked, worked. And I finally, I got them back. But it was there was a long fucking silence during that gag, man. So then I spoke to the one like lady and she was like, yeah, but what you, you fail to acknowledge that Santa's from here. You know what I mean? Like it's we the are the home of Santa yeah, Claus. Yeah, this is the home of Santa Claus. You can't just talk about it like it's some, um, you know what I mean? It's like abstract. Um, yeah, you know what I mean? And then also there was Iceland comedians, Icelandic comedians there who were like, yeah, they like to think that Santa is their guy. So there was a politics of Santa with mm. these Scandinavian people yeah. that I didn't acknowledge. So if I had known that, then I would have incorporated that. Then it would have been a better journey for that gag, you know? So those types of things. Yeah. You have to be very thick-skinned, though, don't you? Hey? I mean, as, as much as you kept pure Manati alive for all those years, just a pure commitment to that idea yeah. that standing up, you have to be a certain kind of person to have that ability to stand in front of... 150, 1,000 people and not absolutely fucking freak out if there's, the laugh doesn't yeah, yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's always terrifying. I mean, before you go on stage, it's always terrifying. And I, I feel, I think that if you don't have those nerves, then it's not going to be fun. I mean, there's, you know, some, like recently, for years it was terrifying, and then now it's like I need to have these nerves, you know, because mm. there's also like a certain maturity that I'm enjoying now of being on stage and being more myself, not kind of being this guy who's going to, do jokes it's more about a guy who's going to tell you things you yeah know? that's uh, yeah that's an uh, that's what i wanted to um discuss a little bit is is sort of what your purpose is what is your role as a stand-up and yeah let's let's start there um what what do you see as the role now for for I mean, comedians and what sort of inspires you um, where do you where do you kind of get your inspiration from is it your home is it the world around you uh, I, I, yeah, I guess it's my life and the world around me. I, when I started, it was kind of like a lot more political, you know, in the politics, not the politics of Zuma, but the politics of, of the time. life, you know, the, the daily, yeah, like race politics, social politics in that sense, you know, where we come from. And that kind of also breaking stereotypes was very important for me. And I thought it was also funny because it's a great stick to come. And then your, your idea, because it was mostly for white audiences as well. It was traditionally yeah. for a very long time, you were performing for white people. And if the the challenge, because it was always crazy that the things that you say, they never. It was wow, so surprising, so crazy. Wow, <laughs> that black guy, eh? so cool. And then for a long time, they also just brushed you with the same, you know. So mm. they'd see a lot, another black guy perform and who was funny for them, and then they'd come and just be like that thing that you did last time. Because the idea that there were more than one, there was more than one black one guy, idea or one yeah, thought. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it wow. was it was it was crazy for them. So like even now, you still get people going yo. David Carl, yo Loisa, lo, you know, vice versa. So, so, so it was. So then, um, um, I, I did that politics stuff with the stand-up, but now it's a lot more personal. There's a lot more 
everything involved. So that I feel like politics are very important for the world and also the, how I get presented to the world because like you always have a back foot in a way as a black person anywhere in the world where where there's your audience is not black people, right? Mm. You all, even in America, if black people, they have like a certain idea of what, what African is and stuff. So you always, when you're performing there, you kind of play into this thing of you guys think I'm just right. electric, the doors with the electric sensor and how, you know, I had to kind of continue this kind of like, oh my God, this is so surprising. I'm African. I've never seen this magic. And, that, you know, like, so playing on, on those that types of things. And, yeah, and the back and forth. But then the, also the reality is, and you see where those people like Trevor kind of he goes there and then they like oh what is he some British guy pretending to be African and then he makes fun of this sort of African American things uh. and then they like oh they take you know so it's like always the, and then you because you are Africans who go to America are mostly going to be educated and so on and so forth and then you know when interacting with with like just guys from the hood who are not necessarily guys who went to Harvard then it's just got to be like because you you are expectation of these Africans is one way, but then you are a little bit more disadvantaged because of education and mm. the state of the black man in America, you know? So, so, so that's always kind of weird that those politics. So it's, so every time you either, you're fighting stereotypes, whether it's like in America, yeah. whether it's like to Swiss people in Europe and so on and so mm. forth, you know, that was also, it's always interesting that you always have to kind of define the space and yourself and yeah. all of that kind of stuff yeah. and be careful of how you come across because you're representing an idea as well you know so do you, so do you have a do you have a preference for sketch shows like tv sketch over stand up and a live audience i know i mean i've i've just done like a like a, i've i think my appetite for sketch has been satiated now because we just made a show the bantu hour which went for two seasons with brahu mazakela and them and it was great i mean it's great resources it's like pms with resources you know mm. um, uh, but <laughs> pms with a budget with a yeah uh, but so it was cool but then I, I feel like and you learn a lot from that and i kind of got my I, I started directing a lot more so i got my confidence and then i made movies just what i want to do is make movies and stand up you yeah know? yeah so so yeah, then i made my my first movie i Shot last year, it came out at the LA Film Festival this year, and it's kind of coming out in South Africa the the in March of 2018. What is that? It's called Catching Feelings. It's a it's okay. a sort of a, a sort of love triangle-y type of thing, but it also kind of talks a lot about touches on race and class and those kind of things. You directed? I directed, and oh, I that and was I your first your di directorial debut. My directorial debut. So it was it was cool. It actually, I think. It's, well, I'm not supposed to talk about it, but it's kind of going out worldwide in uh, April. It's kind of got a global deal, which is cool. Fantastic. Um, 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 and then my second one, I eventually got to make that film about the coming of age with the weed smokers and that uh -huh. high school thing. And I, I, I financed it myself with like my partner and my business partner. We kind of made a plan and we shot it over this. Like this time last year, we shot this film. We The first film we made didn't get into this prestigious festival that we wanted to get. And we were like, ah, maybe it's not working because we weren't patient at the time. But also that impetus, we were like... On a roll, so we made this film, and then it premiered in Fantastic Fest, which is the biggest genre festival in America, and it's now going to Rotterdam in like uh, next month, you know. And I was so like, "What is that movie called?" It's called Matuetwe, 
wizard. Okay. Um, uh, it's it's funky. It's it's short and pretorious. It's exactly oh, like cool. the thing Congrats. that I wanted to do when I went to university the first time, and I was like, I want to make this film. You seem like to this. hold on to these visions. Eh? You you hold on to those things. I you guess. Don't let them go. Yeah, because then it's like digging a hole. You gotta if you dig, there'll be a hole. If you just hit here, 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 then there'll not be a hole. There'll be a little bit of bumps everywhere. You know. So I I think so. Because I, I think what I learned was with PMS. Because then I just like. We held on to it, and then it became a thing. So yeah. then, why why let it go? You know. So that's yeah. I feel like that's how, that's how these things work. Is is directing gonna become your thing now? You'll do a bit of stand up, just uh, yeah, around again. But directing will be now your next phase in your career. Would you think? Yeah, I I, I mean I I I, talk, I call myself a storyteller, and I always said I always wanted to make movies, but then they cost millions of rand to make, if not hundreds of thousands of you know, it's always millions of rands. And uh, where stand-up is the easiest and cheapest way to, to tell the story. And that, mm -hmm. I think even when we did sketch comedy, it was like, why don't we give these stories a little bit more of a like, structure for Some space, money yeah. and, and you know, context. Then, yeah, then you can tell them to a little bit, you can tell them a little better, you know. And especially with PMS, it was such a cool show because it broke boundaries, right? Because yeah. there was also no pay TV you know, there, it was always people were limited to the channels that they had, and then this show was so cool and groundbreaking and multicultural. Because uh, at any given time, there's a, like a there's a Muslim, there's a Jew, there's a Zulu, there's a doctor, there's a lady, there's a you know, and you're kind of crossing all these crazy ideas. So you'd be walking in the streets, and then you'd get like these ladies saying, "Oh my God, you know, Friday is Shabbos, and I'm watching this thing, my boo. You know, this and that." And then you're walking down the road, and the taxi driver's like, "You guys," and then you. So it was like. Like a cool idea and I feel like South Africa has become a lot more divided since then I think then mm. there was a hope of like oh wow there's a common idea and a common goal whereas now SABC is for poor people means black and then even within this kind of digital TV kind of universe, it's all divided in black, white, and this and this and that. And even the way the gatekeepers and the people who share the pie to these places, I think they also have their idea that the black one is is a cheaper one. They know how to do The white one is a bit more. I even heard like recently of a guy who was working on a big show at Mnet where the one producer brought them in. I think it was two years ago, brought them in and gave them like the law, the rule, like black guys can kiss, black black people can kiss each other, um, uh, black people can kiss colored people, colored people can kiss white people, black people and white people, no, and gay people, no. And then he, he laughed, he chuckled. <laughs> so gay people and black people is the same. And then they, they didn't laugh at all. And mm -hmm. then I think a few a week later, they told him not to come That's anymore. Okay. And this is now. This is not like, this is not so, t a century ago. So that's um, because I was going to, you know, you've lived through this incredible experience of actually opening up or being one of the pioneers that's kind of opened up this comedy space in in South Africa but you're saying you're feeling that that's kind of been somehow closed down now that space yeah, again it's, it's 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 look I mean stand-up comedy has come a long way and the guys Kumba is feeling like a three and a half thousand people arena yesterday Trevor Noah does 13,000 people times however many times you know it's a there's all sorts of spaces and there's like this kind of vernac comedy where like guys it's which never existed back then you know so it's cool it's really cool but there's also there's a divide i feel like there's not long there at the time there used to be like these lineups with like kind of multiple comics sharing ideas you know mm -hmm. um uh, 
and and then now it's kind of very different. I mean, I, I don't think it's bad. I think maybe you do need to find these spaces and niches, and then it'll kind of be another circle okay. again where it yeah. kind of then it's a maturity from that where it's less, it's no longer basic. It's again like, oh my God, have you heard what and seen what these people are talking about and saying? But what's important now is that there's, audiences are getting into rooms and and laughing, you know? And then, you know, to a certain extent, they're laughing at me. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, but that's a bit basic. That's a bit fucking like just basic shit that you're laughing at. But that's just me because some people are like, wow, that's great. Sometimes I feel like the shit is not even woke. I don't want to use this mm. term woke because that sounds like fucking so pretentious. But, but it's, not relevant or it, not saying much. Yeah, not saying much is one thing, but it's also perpetuate. It's like homophobic, it's a bit mm. sexist, it's mm. a bit racist, yeah. it's just like, but I mean, it also is a reflection of what the people who, you know, the people who are laughing at it are, you know? So I guess as we move on, you know, I always like say, you know, we, we are growing as a place. You are yeah. like, however, 30 years, 25 years old. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. so at the time, then PMS happens. I, I have to leave those people in, in Edinburgh because the, the, the call happens like, we did say there's a boss barat. The SABC said you must put your... So out there, I'm putting this team together. It, it, like from there, same people go, let's, we're going to meet the SABC's plan, this whole thing. I'm creating a whole lineup of people that are supposed to go, these, all these comics that are going to be working with me on this thing. Um, but at the same time, I'm not saying to the people in in Edinburgh doing What's the show mean? that I need, I need to leave. So eventually I drop the bomb. They're upset. They lock my Ooh. shit in the fucking room. No. I got to get, yeah, I, I remember racing in a cab to the Edinburgh um, uh, airport and then getting into London missing my flight I saw the SAA flight leave and then I had to kind of sleep in the airport and then in the park for the rest of the day eventually I made it and then PMS happened it was a show that happened and then those guys went and, and so those guys were all professional people working at Alexander Forbes Invest Tech they were doctors they were this and that and then they quit their jobs and they became that and then well, no worries. yeah trust trust. I mean if anything is to be trusted Murphy's Law then the SABC didn't pay after all those people quit their jobs the SABC didn't pay for like a month oh, and they, some of them had kids and shit but they stayed and then the show happened became popular then there was stand up there was Joey Razdin after that and Lois Ogola and people like you could yeah. point at and, I mean that know. will really go down in in the history of comedy in this country, that show, I'm sure, as a kind of... Yeah, oh, you know what would be cool is actually what I was talking to David Cow and I think Riyad Musa about is like making a documentary of mm. it, you know, just getting it's guys telling to talk that story. about it and say this is how it came about yeah, and I mean, stuff you, like that. You, you see those names. I mean, yeah. I was just looking at a couple of the, 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 the episodes now because, you know, it wasn't part of my radar. Even. Yeah. I, I was living in Sweden for many years myself. But... You see those names, you, those are like giants of, of our, yeah, yeah, our yeah. comedy. Yeah, that was crazy. I mean, that for me was the crazy part was that we had a, we, it was, we didn't know at the time. And then afterwards, the audience also didn't know stand-up, right? They just knew. So if you said that David Carl's coming, the guy from Pure Minati is coming to do a thing, they didn't know what. Is he going to mm. act out the sketches that we see on TV? And then he'd do stand-up, and it would be the most amazing thing they'd ever seen. So then that was, then he, but at the time, he, we were always lamenting. I mean, him as the revolution, the sort of Eddie Murphy of South Africa, he had always been performing for white people. And he is extremely sort of, 
like he's hood, you know, in a lot of ways. Like he's mm. a guy from Kronstadt and he wants to make those jokes for black people. So he fought a lot, you know. And then there's Sam, Sam Hendricks that then made this show called The Comedy Blackout. And it was very international. Again, it was like, you know, American comics, but it was black in its identity. South African, American comics, it was a cool and a success, but it was still targeted in that way. It was very middle class, mostly white, you know, kind of thing, you know. And then when he got managed by Roddy Quinn, then they made the blacks only, which they did at the Civic here. And then it was just like, you know, unbelievable yeah. amount of people. It, it couldn't be contained in that space. And that's how now the blacks only happens in these 3,000 people arenas every two months, uh, every twice a year kind of thing. And that was great. And then, so from there, then the late night news came where we were like, we want to make a show, like a news satire, like a daily show type of yeah, show. Yeah, exactly. You, know? you could see and that definitely was. Yeah. So that was that. It was like a daily show, let's go. Yeah. And then um, uh, we went to pitch it to the to ETV, to ENCA, and then the, the lady there, Debbie Meyer, was like, oh, no, please. No, we've had this idea. So a lot of people have come. John Blissmas with Deborah Patter have come. This uh, just, guys, it's just too difficult. Don't, please, you know? Um, uh, and then, so, so then we, 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 we pitched that thing, and then we said, give us, we're going to go make a, a pilot, and we'll come back. So we got myself and Louis, so we got a desk. We shot a thing at Atlas Studios, very kind of newspapers. We got archive footage. He did the thing. We put, you know, it was a cool kind of format. Um, uh, and then we, we went back there to show it to them. And uh, I remember before we started, that's when Debbie Meyer was like, oh, no, 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 oh, no, guys. Who are you guys anyway? Oh, my word, no. And then we showed them the pilot. And then afterwards, she took us around on a tour of these facilities. And then I remember when we went past the one studio, she said, this is where you guys will probably be shooting your thing. And this is, you know, and it was great. And she was, and then since then she was a champion of that thing, like 150% champion of that thing, you know? And she's like, unbelievable. She even came with us to, when it got Emmy, nominated for an Emmy, the second time, I think, or the first time she came with, you know, it was yeah. like such a, and very, and Petra Condra, because Petra Condra was a guy who was running the channel at the time. She was like, both those two, like completely 100%, never like censorship, never, you know, that kind of thing. So for Gave five years, blanche, they, free and, yeah, as, as low the, as the budget was, it was still the highest kind of, of, it was breaking their back, you know, but it was kind of important for them to do and it was great for us to do. And then eventually it kind of, yeah, we then Trevor got onto the Daily Show. I remember everybody, we were on set the one day. Dave, who was the foreign correspondent, was doing shows with Trevor in Dubai. So then the whole world got told that day that the new host of the Daily Show is Trevor that Noah. That was so just you can something imagine, else. Like, yeah. You know, some crazy shit right there. We, I remember we used to go, like on Mondays, we'd go to the foundry to have drinks, you know, and then kind of like... Kinda, but on that day, the, the CNN was on loop with just Trevor's childhood photos, this and this and yeah. that, and then just everybody just going, what? the what hell just moment. happened you know yeah. and then yeah so Dave is now there writing another guy Joseph Opio who had done like a Uganda show like Ellen then he came they, we, we call him the most efficient person in the universe because he <laughs> does the thing that he needs to do you know right. so he was like this show of mine is, is, slow, is small he was the editor the writer the this the this the this the that of that show of his so he came to 
to South Africa because he had seen late night news in, when it's broadcast in East Africa. And uh, he was like, this is what I want to do. He sat with it and it was unbelievable, the size of it. He was just always marveling at the size of it. And now he's like one of the senior writers on The Daily Show. Get and out. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And uh, so it's like a crazy thing. And yeah. it's like a whole cycle thing and What now. a dynamic. Eh? Yeah. And then now we are also about to do the Daily Show is about to launch the African correspondent and then there's a South African guy that we're producing that bit oh, of it cool. as well. So it's just oh, like some crazy huh? kind of thing. But yeah, so stand up, these things and making movies. movies. Yeah. Making movies. Is, so, yeah. so 2018 is going to be uh, busier for you then? So next, next year, we're releasing these things and more yeah. things and then making more things. So I guess... Lots of things. Yeah, so one has to get some sleep. I'm going to the NC conference to do this daily show thing. Uh, that's going to be fun. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, we wonder what's going to happen there. Yeah, that's good. Kisa, thanks for cool. your time, man. Yeah, man. Appreciate so, it. Thank you very much for having me. You know, sorry, I, I, I blabbered on and on and on. I was trying and to... there was, there was, uh, there, there's so many stories because when I, when I talk and then I start remembering things and oh, no. it's like, ah, it's crazy. I appreciate it. Thanks. Cool, man. Thank you for having me. so much for listening i hope you enjoyed that please uh, remember to subscribe to the show on itunes or wherever you get your podcast feeds uh, i'd appreciate a rating on itunes as well that just helps with the distribution you're welcome also to please leave feedback and comments on the facebook page uh, voices from sa i was a little remiss in the first episode and not thanking a number of people who've supported this project in various ways from its inception uh, probably half a year ago now Dan Roberts uh, composed the groovy soundtrack. The cool voices from SA logos by my mate Jeffrey Knipe. And Wayne Noonan has helped with the audio. Last but not least, I'd like to thank my dear wife Kaiser for supporting the project from the beginning, cracking the whip when I've slacked off a little bit. So thanks for that, darling. Thanks again for listening. My guest next week is Ronnie Casserols. He's a founder member of the Armed Wing of the NCM Conto with Caesar, and he worked as a government minister for a number of years. He has a new book out called The Simple Man. It's about his relationship with Jacob Zuma, so we touch on that. Jacob Zuma, at the time of this recording, February 14, is the president of South Africa. Ronnie and I spoke about the, the armed struggle, the inception of the armed struggle, some of the debates around that the history of the struggle in South Africa and the challenges of the ANC when it came to government and also some of the issues around the current politics. So look out for that. Take care. See you next time.